0: Hearken back to what Brother Zach shared yesterday at the end. And I know we all felt a spirit of repentance at that time. He felt um, but if you remember in his illustration, he had those walls and the levels of man separating himself from the perfect paradise of God. But then he had that. Piercing through, back through those walls, back into that place. You remember? And Jesus, we know, is the one, the pioneer of our salvation, who was able to pierce back through all that, back into the paradise of God. But he didn't just go there to stand in the presence of God for us while we remain in darkness. Um, And maybe... I think some would view it that way. And when we die, then somehow we're just going to end up there. He pierced back through that. And it was his aim that we would be united to him. And by being united to him, we would have access to the Father. Back into the presence of God. That we would be raised up to sit in heavenly places. And isn't that what we've... Felt last night, the night before, so many times through this. You feel like we're being raised up to sit in heavenly places in Christ. Um, You know, we, we began this whole thing talking about the gospel. And really, if we get to what the gospel really is, that is what joins us to Christ. Um... I don't know if we've written, we've probably gone over it, I'm not remembering, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he makes explicit what that gospel is. So he says in the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying this gospel is something we stand in, something we hold fast, and then he tells us what that gospel is. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So the, the crux of the gospel is the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we have scriptures that tell us not just that, to believe this gospel. Peter said in 1 Peter four seventeen For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's something more than just believing this happened. There's some way God calls us to obey this gospel, this death, this burial, this resurrection. Um, And we see that the message Peter preached on the day of Acts, to the, when he explained to them what had happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, he, he, he said, you crucified the Lord of glory, this Jesus whom God raised up, you crucified. And they said, men and brethren, what must we do? After they were cut to, ha- cut to the heart by this message. And Peter answered them, repent, die. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Buried, Paul in Romans six says we are buried with him through baptism into death. So repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the the first part of this gospel is a negative death, burial, but all that is looking to something, and that is the resurrection. And it's not just something we accede to, it's something we're entering into in this life. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) And we want to see even repentance, like we've been talking about this whole symposium We're not just framing it in terms of individuals. Well, I need individual, I need to repent because I need to get my individual life in order. We need to reframe it in terms of the kingdom. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. Their first message, repent. Do you remember why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like there's some... There's a kingdom being inaugurated and they're coming and saying, before this kingdom to come, something's got to happen. It's like when you're coming to build a building, you don't just go and just automatically start building in a positive sense. First, you're looking, what's already here? Is there a structure that's already where we're trying to build this building? If so, that structure's got to be removed but even that what is the ground we're building this building on is it sufficient for the kind of building we're needing to build or is there, is there something we've got to dig through are there things that are sh- going to shift on us and we, we spoke of the, the foundations of Christ in Hebrews 6 and the diagram that we gave in the and the handout, and the first one is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And may I submit to you that if you look at the dysfunction in the church, first I'll ask you: do you When you look at the dysfunction in the church, the the rampant, and you know, in many sex segments of the church, the rampant sin, or just the dysfunction in relationships is it possible that that's largely due to a failure to reckon with this first foundation element i believe it is and you know it's possible too to go part way we need to know what the fullness of repentance means because you can you can make some prep you know you can make some excavation but when you're when you're going to build a substantial structure what you want to get to is something solid. You want that foundation. Whatever, whatever else happens, you want to to tap into something that's not going to move. And anybody that's done building, or you know, the, the headache you run into if you don't do that. The everything, the ramifications are endless. When the foundation's wrong, everything else can is going to be a mess. So, it's it's very important that we understand what what is this? What is true repentance? You know, somebody might say, "Well, isn't repentance making works necessary for salvation?" And this harkens back to what we talked about the other day. True biblical repentance is the only way to avoid such dead works, because. Hebrews 6 says it's repentance from dead works. What is this structure that's having to be removed? It's this carnal nature. It's the man of sin that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said that which is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever the flesh produces is just going to be more flesh and it will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's got to be something new. And so that, that, that's that got to be removed. It's not that it just sits there inert and does nothing, and somehow that gives room for God to do what he wants to do. It's got to die. Maybe we can just talk about a couple ways that repentance could fall short, um, ways that it, would, it could be avoided or fall short that wouldn't allow that building to, to be built on something solid, and of course, somebody says it's not necessary. That that would qualify, I believe. <laughs> what would be some others?
1: At a point in time, you feel sorry about some things you've done, and you ask for forgiveness.
0: Amen. Would you not? I mean, I think we'd all agree that would at least be a part of repentance, right? You you feel sorry but didn't Paul Paul did say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 he says my letter i was sorry when when to have to make you sorry but though i did repent he said i do not <laughs> though i was sorry i'm not sorry for your sorrow led to repentance he said so i'm not rejoicing that you were made sorry as an end in itself but that your sorrow led to repentance which seems to indicate that just being sorry, though that is a step in the right direction, if, that, if it's the right kind of sorrow, <laughs> not the self-pitiful sorrow. Oh, but God, what have I done? So I would say, yes, that does fall short, but it's, it could be a step in the right direction. I think another big one is just to assume that's already happened, either because of something like that, You don't want to assume something. You want to you want to have that conviction, that that assurance.
2: Let me help with some of these insufficiencies, if you don't mind. So, repentance just means to change my mind. And so, before I came to Christ, I um, I didn't have a mind to obey Him, or, or rather, to believe on what He had did, what He had done for me. Um, I still don't have a mind to obey Him, but. In, in this Now, I, I'm doing like Paul in Romans 7, so don't take me seriously here. <laughs> but now I, I have a mind to believe on what he did for me. And so my repentance is complete
0: in that I changed my mind, or that he changed my mind for me. I guess I would what I would say to that, it almost sounds like you could just wake up one morning and I'm going to change my mind today about Jesus, and I think repentance is a changing of the mind, but it seems like from some of the things Paul says, the mind is more like a stronghold than something you just kind of change one day, it's a barricade, what did he say, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for pulling down strongholds, and what did he start, how did he start explaining that stronghold, casting down arguments, reasonings, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity Amen.
1: Um,
0: it seems revolutionary Amen. Yeah. go ahead
2: how um, about your, your motive
3: if your motive behind the repentance isn't right, then If I change my, let's say that I'm I'm courting my girlfriend, now wife, and I change myself, I repent of certain things during the courtship, but once we're married,
0: I return to them because my motive was to capture, not to truly change. Amen. I think that's very good. Well, and I would just say that in
2: Acts 7, uh, 11 or rather, the uh, apostles praise God that he granted, that God granted the Gentiles repentance. So repentance isn't something we should worry about. God does it all for us. And all we have to do is just sit there and let him do his work. He's sovereign, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> said they need to
0: pray me through (laughs) (laughs) he does command us to repent which means that we have to obey that and it's true that it is a gift of God it is granted by God but like we talked about when we talked about faith Jesus healed many people and how many times you see him requiring them to participate In that healing. But that didn't mean it ceased to be a gift. That didn't mean they earned their healing. It just meant that he's saying, I want I want you to enter into a relationship with me in this. I'm not just gonna wave a magic wand and there your problems go away. It's a gift of God. We cannot earn it, we cannot attain it, but we can enter into the work of God. When he invites us, when he begins to speak to us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's not a positive exertion of our will. Repentance is the death of our will. Amen. So how can the death of something be the work of something? If the flesh is dying, the flesh is ceasing to work. Jesus. And God is now able to work. And that's what repentance is for. Here's a here's a structure. Here's a an edifice, a stronghold. And it's standing in the place where God wants to establish a piece of his kingdom. And he wants to integrate us into a huge structure that he's building. But there's this thing in the way. And we're getting that out of the way. But we do have a part to play in that. Because it's, it is voluntary. He doesn't just come and say, blow it up and I'm going to do... He says, are you willing? Will you participate? Will you step into this? Will you give yourself to this? Today, if you hear his voice, will you open your heart? Or will you resist? Because you can. That's why Paul said, I urge you, brothers, not to receive the grace of God in vain. There's a grace that comes to lead us to repentance, to bring us into Christ. And that grace can be in vain on our choice.
4: Amen. Can I try to help you a little bit with the sovereignty problem? It just occurs to me that if if God is sovereign, then he should have the prerogative to choose uh, how he exercises that sovereignty. And it shouldn't be us who decide for him what he's supposed to do with his sovereignty. Then we're sovereign. Right? So... um, God has, in his sovereignty, provided a way for us. That's what he's chosen to do, is he's chosen to give us a free will. He's chosen to make a, it, it even possible for us to come to him through his sacrifice, through his grace. He's opened the door, and he's chosen to give us the choice Amen. that we might be like him and freely choose to love him rather than uh, be robots that are, uh, you know, have no capacity to actually enter into the highest form of, of love. Amen. And I want to comment, too, uh, on your, your mind change that you had before. I'm just feeling a burden for here. <laughs> uh, um, you referenced Romans 7, and it seems like a good passage to look at for, for that very thing, Where, because Paul obviously says, he says, with my mind, I serve the law of God. I want to do right, but the things I want to do, I don't have find in myself the power to do them. And he concludes by saying, "So who is going to deliver me from this body of death?" So he clearly indicates that if we're still if we're still if our works are are not in keeping with his righteousness, then we are still in bondage to our body of death. We have yet to be saved.
2: Remedies that dilemma in Romans 8. Yes, ma'am. Um, another
5: uh, reason for maybe uh, not repenting would be, um, or not being full, would be living above reproach. In the words of our 45th president, why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I am not making mistakes? <laughs>
0: It's always struck me that Jesus, when he said there, the Son of Man did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Who are these righteous that don't need to come to repentance? You don't get the feeling he said that, Think actually indicating that there were these people that don't need repentance. But he was making the point, if you are already righteous, you have nothing to gain from me, which wasn't a good thing. And it's it's like the sometimes that edifice that needs to be removed, the better it looks, the better it seems to be, the more dangerous it is. Because the more we're likely to be deceived, you know, this can be we can keep this. We can just do some alterations and but if this thing is standing in the place of the Lordship of Jesus that would bring us into relationship with him and that would save us, that would take us through those. Walls that have separated us from God into his presence. Whatever that edifice is, however bad it looks or however good it looks, it is a, it's an idol, and it's keeping us from entering into life. And that's what the religious of Jesus' day did. They, they, there was an edifice they were unwilling to let go. There was a religion they were unwilling to let go that was standing in the place of their relationship with God even while they claim to have a relationship with God. Do you see that? So he could say, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Whatever is keeping us from coming to him, however good, however bad, it's keeping us from life and it's gonna ultimately separate us from God. So there's something, we've got to come up with, come, there's a desperation that rises up. Lord, blow it to pieces. Bring it down. I'm giving myself to that, because I don't want anything in my life to separate me from you, from the path that you would take me on. in
1: keeping with do you on some of the hallmarks, as it's been quoted before, of repentance? You know, when we saw that visual yesterday, um what was mentioned by brother Zach is that in stepping out of the will of God or when we when we choose to walk in the flesh right we begin to in- immediately encounter what to put it in the terms that he's using these feedback loops that God gives us that are almost universal laws so to speak that you begin to encounter insecurity anger frustration right and these are not just like oh I was angry today you know like That should be this indicator, this warning light that says, "Whoa, I am not in the spirit of God. I am in the carnal man. This is the fruit of carnality. So I need a way of repentance opened up to me because I need to get back into right the spirit." And it's been very helpful for me to think on um, some of the hallmarks. What are those feedback loops, if you want to touch on them, as far as indicating that? I am not in repentance. I, I have not entered into the fullness of repentance biblically because I'm seeing if these markers are occurring in my life or these are evident in my life. Brother Daniel, <clears throat> brother
2: Daniel started by uh, pointing out that the gospel was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then quoting from First Peter. And he he also could have quoted from Second Thessalonians one eight where it says God will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. And so it creates a dilemma immediately where we know what the gospel is. It is the death, burial, and resurrection. But then we are told repeatedly also in Romans two eight. So in, in three primary scriptures, we are explicitly told that we must obey the gospel. If the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I know how people would say I should believe those facts. How do I obey the death of Jesus? How do I obey the burial of Jesus? How do I obey the resurrection of Jesus? There's some sense in which we've watered down the gospel to be so much less than what it was intended to be and what it is indicated to be through these scriptures. And so what we're suggesting is that this This obedience to the gospel was perfectly and concisely presented when the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. And a bunch of people who were correctly convicted asked, what should we do? And they were told exactly how they should obey the gospel. And you can hear the gospel in the threefold command, repent, be baptized, you will be filled. That's the gospel. And so, if you look at Romans 6, he speaks of baptism as the burial of our old self. But there cannot be a burial unless there has first been a death. We have to die to something. And what we, have, what we die to is the reign of sin. Sin shall no longer be master over you as he says in the end of Romans 6, verse 16 through 19 or thereabout. So sin is a tyrant. Sin is a totalitarian tyrant that controls our emotions, that controls our opinions, that controls our perspective, our carnal nature, our usurped role as God over our own lives controls everything about us. And that tyranny of the flesh has got to come down it's got to be dethroned and that doesn't feel like whoop do i changed my mind it feels like death because it is death it is dethroning and death and so there are there are there are, there's going to be a chance there's going to be endless opportunities in our life to test whether that dethroning of sin and self has been complete. Paul does not say we are by circumstance children of wrath. He does not say we we are intrinsically good, but occasionally our environment produces something nasty from us. He says we were all by nature children of wrath, destined to wrath just as all the rest. But God intervened, and that was what we saw in that graphic yesterday. Amen. So there's a a nature problem, there's not just a circumstantial problem. There's not just a behavioral problem. Many can learn to moderate their behavior. They can learn to bottle it up and not express what's really going on inside. But that's not repentance, that's sin management. In fact, that's the best way to keep it alive. It's to learn to box it up and hide it behind certain etiquette and certain pretenses. But you're not dealing with the core of the problem. John the Baptist likened repentance to a tree being cut down. There's a tree, there's a root of selfishness. There's a root of pride. There's a root of sin that's penetrating deep into our very Into the deepest parts of who we are. And this is not a circumstantial problem. This is not an environmental problem. This is us. We're not going to die to something. We're going to die to self. Self. What makes us us us. That's what we're going to die to. And we're going to see that the problem is at the very core of who we are. John the Baptist said, Go bear fruits in keeping with repentance, for the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. They were claiming some measure of repentance because they were coming to the man who was baptizing, a baptism of repentance. But he didn't think that their lives indicated their claim. And so he told them, you brood of vipers, You go bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And we don't know exactly what that fruit was until Jesus came and referred them back to that baptism. Jesus walked into that temple about three years later and he started cleaning it. And when he commenced to clean that temple, they rose up and challenged his right to do so. As soon as they challenged him, he took them back to that baptism. And he said, you know, John told you to do something. But you only got out there because you thought his baptism was from God. But he told you you needed to do something before you got this gift from God. What did you do with that command? That's basically what he's asking them when he says, The baptism of John, was it of man or of God? Have you made a decision yet? Because if it had been of God, and if they had borne the fruits in keeping with repentance, the first fruit is to recognize and accept the lordship of the Spirit. When God starts cleaning our house, if there's no competing Lord sitting over our lives, we're going to instantly recognize it and say, yes, Lord. This cleansing that you're doing in the temple is scary. It's, I'm not accustomed to it. It's out of my control. But I recognize that this is the voice of the shepherd. This is the work of God. And I'm not going to challenge the authority of the Spirit in my life anymore. So it seems like a very primary fruit is to recognize and accept the authority of the Spirit and not challenge it, not rebel against it, not have this automatic revulsion toward the Lordship of Jesus. seems like another fruit is if we have died to the reign of self, then we've lost all defensiveness. We've lost this, this... the mobilizing jets of our uh, uh, emergency defense system, where we instantaneously, without thinking, begin to explain away our mistakes or defend ourselves or show that we didn't do that and that wasn't in our heart and blah, 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 blah. We live with this conviction of who we are. As Peter would say, we know what manner of man we are. Amen. We know what God has, has delivered us from. As David would say, my sin is ever before me. It's in our thoughts. We are, we're walking around with the brokenness, the humility that indicates that we are more distrustful and more wary of, our, of lordship over our own lives than anything else. And these are some of the fruits, and there, there are many other fruits of Repentance. John the Baptist doesn't refer to the fruits of the Spirit, which are in accord with those fruits of of repentance, but that's the positive work of God. The fruit of repentance should be marked by things that are not there. We're not defensive. We're not full of pride. We're not uh, blind and unable to recognize the voice and authority of the Spirit. Amen. We're not asserting control and rights over our own lives because we have died to those in receiving God's mercy. Those are some of the fruits that would seem to present themselves most prominently or should. Yes, sir.
6: I was uh, hearing hearing someone talking about repentance the other day um, and they said that to not repent and go on assuming that your salvation is okay is like going into the covenant of marriage and continue to date other women and that's, I thought that was pretty strong and so it must be a total commitment, a, a total dying or else it, it, it didn't mean anything. I recall uh, raising the children and they would uh, do something that they knew they weren't supposed to and when they got caught they were very sorrowful that they got caught but the next thing you know their hand was back in the cookie jar and so Godly sorrow should work repentance, but there is a difference in the sorrow of getting caught versus the true repentance. It, it is a covenant. It is a commitment. It is a totality of dying to self. Jesus Amen. said that if any man will be my disciple, he must first deny himself. Amen. And it is the biggest obstacle. Amen. But yet it is a prerequisite before we should go on to any of the other
2: foundational truths of salvation. Amen. Amen. I want to build on that that you just said. uh, He must deny himself. That's a powerful depiction of repentance. It's the same exact word he uses in Matthew 10 where he says, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. So he's saying, I need you to do with your flesh what you're tempted to do toward me, toward the Spirit. You you want to deny the reign of the Spirit. You want to suppress it. You don't want to give it expression. Well, that's what you need to do with your flesh. You need to deny it. You need to undermine it. You not, You need to not give it voice. Amen. Another fruit of repentance that I gave in that teaching you're referring to is faith. Faith toward God. Because before repentance, you're living by faith. But it's faith in the God of self. It's faith in the opinions of self. And and, and when you truly come to repentance, you withdraw that faith from self. And you posit all your suspicion and distrust, first and foremost, in the flesh. And then you put your faith in God, in the leading of His Spirit. And I, I think that's got
0: to be another, a third primary indicator of repentance. Just in terms of what the brother said at first, I want to just read a couple of verses in Romans seven. Or do you not know, brother? And for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, so that she, though she marry another man. And then he's going to describe why he's saying all this. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, what is he assuming by that, that we are not in the flesh anymore? That's what he's saying, that we've got to come to a place where we're not in the flesh. For when we were in the flesh the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death but now we have been delivered from the law why just because Jesus settled something that was the first that's what that's what had to happen but then he says we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so this master he's talking about that we're married to is the sin nature amen and as long as that sin nature is living, we cannot legitimately be married to the Lord Jesus. That's, that's what he's making clear here. Amen. There is no, what the brother said, you're trying to marry, but yet you're still courting other relationships. It's, it's adultery. Amen. There's a master that's got to die. Amen. And the death of that master releases us from the law that condemns that man of sin Amen. so we can be married to him who was raised from the dead Amen. so our ident- identity can be absorbed in the one who has access back into the the garden of God Amen there's got to be a death Amen Amen. He says in Ephesians 2
2: He says "You and you were dead in your trespasses so what makes us Dead, prior to repentance, is our bondage to sin. And then what we've got to do in repentance is die to death. (laughs) Die to the reign of death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You're not still walking in it, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So obedience is another fruit of repentance. Among them, we we too were all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So death is reigning through sin. In Jeremiah, he shows us again that it is not not an environmental problem that we are resolving. It is a core nature problem. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? A sure sign of of a lack of repentance is this defensiveness, this early warning system that detects the assailing Missiles of truth heading our way and sends out, oh, that was not in my heart. That is not what I meant. I'm sorry you misunderstood me that way. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Repentance tells us we don't know our own hearts. We can't know our own hearts. We need the Lord to help us. Matthew 19 says, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is no one who is good. And in Matthew 7, he says, That which proceeds out of a man is what defiles him. His sickness is not circumstantial. His sickness is not environmental. His sickness is inside of him. And what comes out of him is what's defiling him. So the problem is not, Change my environment and I won't be this way. I would say it's one of the biggest bondages that we see in people who refuse to confess and acknowledge and let God show them that there is a problem at their core. And instead, they want to believe that if I just had a different job, I wouldn't be so much this way. And if I just had a different spouse, I wouldn't be like this. And if I just had different parents, or if I had this different or that different, if I didn't have this affliction, or if I did have that opportunity, I wouldn't be who I am. And so they're... Everyone is very intent on changing their circumstance, changing their environment. Environment is important, but it is nowhere near as important as changing the nature, changing what is inside of a man, because that is where the defilement is coming from. In Romans 3, he says, There is none righteous, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become useless. There is none who does what is good all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god these don't these are not scriptures that are intended to make us complacent about sin complacent about the problem they're scriptures intended to show us where the problem lies it lies at our core it doesn't lie in our environment it's what comes out of us is that's what's got to change and the mind Proud mind is the stronghold, as Brother Daniel has already indicated, of all that sin. Amen. What was the scripture you quoted
0: from Paul? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, for casting down arguments, and every every high high thing thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He
2: sums all this warfare language up by saying, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of the mind of Christ. So here's here's where the war happens, right here. Desire, when it is conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. It all starts right here. This is the throne of the carnal nature sitting in the reasoning between our ears, acting as if it knows everything. Amen. Amen. And that's the edifice that's got to come down, where we can say, to quote the scripture brother the Dan referenced, we know nothing yet as we ought to know. We've got to know God, and we've got to be known by God, and He will begin to show us His truth. Thank you, Jesus. The mind set on the flesh cannot Please, God. Did somebody have a question? Yes, sir. I just wanted to say something
7: that is personal to me about this subject. Before I came to this community, growing up in an evangelical church, repentance really felt like a self-help program, a series of techniques, a way to kind of manage, you know, your problems, and I think it's easy to sort of fall into that. Oh, I feel a little anger there. Oh, and need to kind of work on that there. But as I began to go down this road of what God was calling me to, and I began to try a little harder, you know, and, and people would pray for me to be the husband that I needed to be, or the father that I needed to be. And you think, well, I can try a little harder there. And you come to a place and you say, I can't be the father I need to be. (laughs) I can't be the husband that I need to be. I can't be the brother. This standard that God has set is beyond my capacity. And I've lived this long time, you know, trying to live for God of standards that I have set for myself. And I've worked through this self-help program of a little sin management. But now the standard is before me that I cannot meet. And you find yourself hemmed in and you want to know what does it feel like to have bedrock repentance you're hemmed in with the Egyptians on one side and the Red Sea on the other, and you say, God, I've been obedient and I've come down this road, but now here I'm stuck. There's this thing that I can't manage here, and there's this great sea that I cannot pass. And then what's the promise? These Egyptians you see, you will see no longer. Amen. and then something comes that's beyond your capacity of managing sin. You get a complete regeneration. You become something that you cannot be. God begins to call something that is not as though it is. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
4: I just think about the you know the viewpoint of the world is just the opposite of what we're talking about here. The world tells us there there's you're not born in sin and shaped in iniquity that we're all just good potential shaped by our environment, you know, and so therefore, whatever your problems are, as has already been said, there was some prior cause that had nothing to do with you, and so this brings in this model that says, well, you were probably abused as a child, you probably had parents that were too strict, or you probably, uh, you know, your parents weren't college educated, or Whatever, there's something in your history or in your environment or your past or your you know, the, the water you drink, or something that is messing with your metabolism and corrupting the purity of your innate goodness. And so so the world adopts this therapeutic model. And that's all that's what we don't need to be condemning of, of, of wrong behaviors. We don't need to that that's being judgmental and cruel. To call sin a sin, even the word sin. I mean, you wouldn't use that word, right? It it might be mistakes or, or whatever. But so while they can see that there are destructive consequences and a lot of misery going on, it's just not your fault. You are a victim of something else that has been done to you or that was not done for you that should have been or whatever. And so they adopt a therapeutic model for dealing with these kinds of things. And it's the self-help kind of program Brother Greg was talking about. Or, or better yet, get the help of an expert. Get the help of some kind of psychiatrist or uh, psychologist or therapist or whatever. And, and the, the, the sad thing is that the church in our day has just followed the same model. We've been blinded, and, and I, I say we, I hope God help us they, have fallen into that same thing to where now pastoring becomes the same kind of thing. It becomes a certain kind of counseling to help you feel better about yourself. We need to build your self-esteem back up so that you can believe that you can be, you know, that you can live up to your wonderful potential or whatever. And God, God save us from the viewpoint of the world. Let's take our standard from this right here. Let's, because those things, do they bring freedom? Do they bring freedom? They don't. They just bring us, at best, what Brother Rossi mentioned, this sin management idea where we get this stuff going on in our head and we, we feel better. We, we, we're told that there is no guilt, that guilt is the problem. The problem is not that you're sinning. The problem is, is that it makes you feel so bad. So if we can just convince people that it was really okay and it really wasn't your fault, you're not guilty, then we fix the problem even though the behavior persists, even though the loneliness persists, even though the destructiveness persists. Thank God for a real salvation. Amen. Amen. And, and, and I think the reason that we tend to, in our flesh, we, we want to turn towards those enticing words, that, to, that those words that tickle our ears. We want to turn towards that because we feel something down in our core like what Brother Greg just said. Amen. We feel this... We, we're afraid that, you know, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm actually powerless to really change. Like this is impossible. And, and every time I start to think it's possible and I try again, I fail again. Wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And so since we see no real solution, then we say, well, then, then we've got to just come up with a way to put a band-aid on this thing and limp along and keep going. But God has offered us more than that. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And it's not just because he's done it for us. It's that he's offered us the possibility that if we could get in him, there would be no more condemnation. If we could be in him and walk according to the spirit, if we could be empowered and be saved by that grace that comes from outside of ourselves and our own efforts, that we have received from Him power to actually overcome this sin, there's going to be no condemnation. We're going to be buoyed up by the power of the Spirit, and, and we're going to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and
1: walk in that Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
2: Thank you, Jesus.
1: Somebody. You know, what Brother Dan just shared about the entrance of the therapeutic salvation, when you go back to the origins of it in the beginning of the 20th century, just want you to know it was explicitly voiced and designed to supplant Christianity. This wasn't an accident, you know. They 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 said Freud and, and Jung and people like that, they said we want to replace the weak Christian pastoral care with the scientific therapeutic method. They hated Christianity. They hated. They they were people who did not want to come to repentance, and so they came up with all of these ideas. I'm just saying Amen. what he's saying, that's antichrist. Amen. Amen. Amen.
2: I want to ask you a question. Who is supposed to do the dying? You have been taught that Jesus did all the dying for you. And his his death atoned in the sense that it balanced out justice. And remove the barrier so that we could access the Father, the Spirit. But are we supposed to do the dying when it comes to repentance? Listen to these scriptures. Even so, this is Romans 6.11. Reckon yourselves to be, or consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now listen to this next phrase that is not often quoted. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Who has the responsibility to not let sin reign? He speaks to the church. He says, do not let it happen. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In this same chapter, up a little bit in verse 6 through 7, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, he, that's a little he, that's not capital he. He. That's you and me. He who has died is freed from sin. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more momentarily, but when he says freed, that is the word translated justified everywhere else. That's he who has died is freed or justified from sin. In Galatians 5.18, he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is perfectly parallel to Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who are led not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The clear implication is if you are not led by the Spirit, you are indeed under the law. In Galatians 5.24, he says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Who has done the crucifying of the flesh? those who belong to Christ not just Christ those who belong to him have crucified the flesh and he indicates that this is this becomes a question of whether we belong to Jesus or not if we have not crucified the flesh we do not belong to him in Colossians 3: 3, 3 he says for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God this concept of hiddenness refers to the death of of our vanity, our image, our ego, our independence, who we are apart from Christ. The church does not teach today that an individual should measure their belonging to Christ based on their hiddenness. They teach you to be your own self and to bolster that image and that vanity and to parade it around and be your own individual. There's only one individual and it's Jesus. And if you're... Visible If you're apparent and lauded and respected and attention-seeking outside of Him, then you don't belong to Him. And you have not died to that thing that wants to have worship and praise and respect besides Him, outside of Him. Colossians 2.2, if you have died, he says to the church, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? as if you were living in the world. Do you submit yourselves to these things again? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now. That describes a repented mindset. He doesn't have a life outside of Christ. He doesn't have an identity. It is no longer I who live. Do you want to get to that place? Do you want to get to the place where there's no you outside of Jesus? Where you can honestly say, my life is hidden For someone to be hidden means you can't find them. Do you want someone to say, I remember this person, this smart aleck, vainglorious, spiteful, arrogant person, and I can't find them anywhere. I see the body of Christ, but I can't find this person. Well, that would describe someone whose life is hidden. Hidden. Someone who can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The world teaches you to be independent. teaches you that you're not free if you're not independent. But we, we, we love the song, it's only in your will that I am free. Bondage is this slavery to sin. Not just sin in gross expressions of of crime or uh, whatever you may think of, but sin in the vanity of the flesh. Sin in the pride of life. Sin in the certainty of a blinded perspective. Sin as trust in anything but God. Sin as everything that is not of faith in God. Romans 7, Brother Daniel already referred to it. Romans 12, 1, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't say he's Lord, don't praise his name and raise your hands. Don't clap and sing and think that's worship if you're unwilling to make an oblation and a sacrifice of your image, of your pride, of your independence, of everything that makes you, you, apart from Jesus and His grace. If you want to encounter the true body of Christ, you're going to encounter a corporate entity where the individual's have no identity outside of him. Where they can say we are hidden and for us to live is Christ and to die is truly gain. Paul says in Galatians six, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world so the world died to paul he saw the world die and it was revolting it was revolting it was repulsive through jesus paul saw the death that was in the world and it was crucified to him it was put to death it became a dead entity in his life and likewise the world looked at paul and saw a dead end saw someone who would no longer fulfill any of their ambitions. So he was crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to him. We don't work for each other anymore. What are we dying to? We've already said it. Our carnal mind, our independence, our pride. We are dying to the reign of sin. Jesus told Peter to get behind him, and he called him Satan because he savored the things that be of man. We're dying to that love for the things of the flesh that makes us an agency of the wrong power. Yes, sir? You spoke about
5: salvation being not a familiar event, but a place or a path that... that as well um in that, you know it's because we're called to die daily right? yes sir so, um, i mean is there is there, a, is there a nuance there where there's there's this one major death that takes place in person that's kind of a maintenance program afterward or like Jesus when he washes the disciples
2: experience to be a been lost yes sir okay. yes sir. the brother was just asking you know we don't we don't view faith as a punctilior Event, but we see it as an ongoing walk. Is repentance the same way? And I would say, in a sense, yes. But there is a point in a believer's life when, by the grace of God, the the reign of sin is dethroned, and that is that is a powerful event. That is something that God brings him to in a supernatural dethroning, in a supernatural repentance. But then it is a process every day to walk that out and to keep that reality uh, that, we, that God gave us through repentance. And so there is a dying every day because every day there is an opportunity for resuscitation. The world is trying to defibrillate and resuscitate and give CPR to that wretched man that we put to death. And so every opportunity that we say no to is another dying Then, of course, there's also the dying of sacrifice, of service, of love, whereby we take up our cross and lay down our will and what we could be apart from that service. We die to it when when we give ourselves in love for others. But the reign of sin is broken in our great seminal repentance. It is walked out in that daily service and sacrifice and keeping of that
3: commitment. asking this question. I was just remembering an experience that I had. You know, we talk about the axe being laid to the root of the tree. And I went out to my garden, and it's like I found this thistle that had grown up. I just It, it had completely gone to seed. It was like as soon as I touched it, you could feel those seeds falling off and landing in the ground. And you go and you put the, the, the hoe to it, and you bring up you take out that thistle, you take it off, and it's it's removed from the garden. But there is also a, a, a saying among gardeners that one year's seed, when it comes to those weeds, seven years weed. One year's seed, seven years weed. Our goal is to not let those plants go to seed, but in our, our lives prior to repentance we have had a tree of sin that has grown up it has gone to seed it has landed in that soil so god brings us to this this irrevocable place where we say the axe has been laid to the root that tree has been removed from from the soil of my heart but then we've also got to know that until the end those seeds they're going to they're going to continue to try to sprout up and our job is to Weed to remove those things and also to allow our hearts to be cultivated in such a way that we remove those all along the way. And, you know, it's not like you weed the same for seven years. If you're diligent to allow that, your heart to be cultivated, over time you are going to see less and less of those seeds growing up in your life. There are things that I know when I came, when I first came to God, I felt like I had to daily get out there and chop and chop and chop at things. But I can tell you now that while I'm still out there chopping and still, in, still allowing God to work in my life, there are things that I do not struggle with. You just do not see it in the same way anymore. And, and then, and then in, ter- in regards to the sacrifice, I think about how Paul also said that we are the fragrance of Christ everywhere that we go and that we are being saved by that sacrifice that we enter into every day. And so that's another way that we see that out those, that sin pulled out of our lives is because every day we're being led in triumphal procession. Amen. That we're allowing ourselves to die daily with Him. Amen. Amen. I'd like to just read a couple scriptures that
2: highlight what I was saying about the, the exalted mind being the throne of the carnal nature in His reign. Can, can you listen for the mind in these scriptures? For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. I'm sure some of us have experienced that hostility toward God, even recently. Whenever you get around the presence of God or the conviction of his word, there's something hostile that comes bubbling up to the surface of someone who has not died in repentance. It's like, I don't, I don't I don't, know if I agree with that. Well, your flesh doesn't agree with that. It's a proposition of death to that flesh. But we would hope that there's something besides that flesh uh, involved in this equation. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Amen. And then in Colossians 1:21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile, it's a totally different book, but here he goes. Paul really thinks that hostility and hatred and warfare with God comes through your head. You were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds. A hostility to God's will in your head is what is keeping you captive to evil deeds. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, as all the rest. What makes us children of wrath is our nature that expresses itself in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The the mind of the flesh is as every bit as dangerous as the as the flesh as it is conventionally spoken of today. Remember that you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says in Ephesians 2, that same chapter later on after speaking of this this, uh, desire of the flesh and of the mind. Verse chapter 4 he says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And then as Brother Dan pointed out, he begins to elaborate what that futility of walking by your mind looks like. He says, being darkened in their understanding. So there's a darkness. You, you don't get things. You're the first soil that fails. This is the soil where seed fell and they did not understand it. And so the devil took it away. Amen. Being darkened in their understanding, excluding, exclude, ex- excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Oh, poor things. They're ignorant. Well, no. Because of the hardness of their heart. Oh, rebellious things. They need to soften and repent. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to all these debased things. All starts because of the futility of the mind. Now, that's a that's a, that's a place that only God can bring you. Will, you. will you truly take your trust out of the throne of your mind and put it in the Spirit of God? But if you don't get to that place, your, your carnal mind will still be mediating all reality for you, and it is futility. It leads to the exclusion your exclusion from the life of God. Sin deceives us through the mind, Paul says. Even though you knew God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a convincing power. But it's convincing, all the convincing takes place in our heads. Romans 7.11, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We're going to have to face the fact that this is where the tree is most secure. Is right here in our heads. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Yes, sir.
5: I was thinking of the theme that we've been on, of uh, community, and I know a lot of folks are coming here with that, in the heart. And yet when the standard of the gospel has been lowered so much and repentance is really not taught, to go and build a community yep. without this foundation is going to bring such an incredible reproach upon the church. Where there is not this type of repentance in a people, there is no hope to be alive. Amen. In fact, all it's going to do is ruin a lot of lives. When you think about the hallmarks of false religion, we can tell from the first century what that looked like. It was a polishing of the outside of the cup. But there was a ban. There was a mining moratorium. You couldn't go below the surface. And actually dive in to what was going on in the heart. No one wanted to do that. They just wanted to manage the outside. And it produced all is what Jesus said inwardly, there's all this wickedness. And they they walk by whitewashed tombs. And I know a lot of people think, well, you know, how long should we preach on repentance in our church before we start building a community? Well, you have to remember this. The ministry of the Spirit came on the back of two prior ministries that led up to Calvary. First, John the Baptist who came preaching repentance. Amen. And there was a, a whole setup for some number of years in which preparation work was going on, getting the soil conditions correct for the work that was going to come. And then Christ came and took the standard of the law here, you have heard it said, but I'm telling you, you even look with lust in your heart. You're committing adultery. Now he's increasing this. Now there is this need. We're paralytics. We're lepers. God, what are we going to do? We heard it from John. And now you've raised the standard. There's no hope in polishing the outside of the cup. Well, now all of a sudden, the soil is ripe for the birthing of a church. And if you do this the wrong way, yeah, you know, I'm saying I have. Um, you know, you're know you going to start hurting people's lives. Praise be to God that he gets a hold of that quickly and says, don't keep building here. Amen. Paul says, I'm a wise master builder. He said that he would not build on any other foundation than that which was of Christ. And if you start to build on something other than that, Amen. and you just keep pressing forward, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And I'll tell you something too, and I just feel this exhortation to us all. If you are preaching about the body of Christ and community, and you are King Saul. You are still of the flesh, a man of the flesh. You have not entered into the type of repentance that could actually lead a body. You should not be up there preaching it. Okay, you need to be Lazarus to preach about the resurrection, not King Saul. King Saul is still trying to please the people. King Saul is still not under the revelation yet that obedience is greater than sacrifice. King Saul still wants to leave little pockets of... Alive, instead of saying they've got to be put to death. Amen. Lazarus was dead four days. Lazarus can tell you this sickness, it comes to death, but there's something on the other side. Amen. And that's who needs to be preaching resurrection power. Amen. It's someone who's gone through the grave and can tell you, you haven't gone deep enough. Amen. You haven't gone far enough. And I'm telling you, there's hope. If you don't want to live in that misery, we can keep going. But I'm telling you... Right now, we're just at the tip of the iceberg.
0: Self still rules and reigns, but let's get to it. I've gone through to the other side. Amen. Amen. This is what God is looking for, and this is the kind of people that he can build his temple with. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look. On him who is poor, of a contrite spirit, that means shattered, and who trembles at my word. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh Lord, you will not despise. At that time, this is Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children... You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, as this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if we're going to lead, we better have broken. And the, you know, he goes on to say, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. What is he saying? Just a is he just still talking about just a little child, or those people? that have been willing to humble themselves.